Touch them all, Joe. You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Tigers have won the game. Five to four. I don't believe what I just saw. This is Horse High to Cowhide, America's pastime. Behind the back, it gets to a Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. Featuring your host, Ricky Litwinkowicz. Game-winning walk-off home run by Derek Jeter. He is Mr. November. Welcome back to another edition of Horseside Cowhide. I am your host, Ricky Litwinkowicz. And this week we have an amazing jam-packed episode for you. Dating back from April 3rd to April 9th, years starting at 1912. On the show as well, we have commentary from Alex, the bear man from Texas, Alcazaz. Mark Braverman and Enzo Pontrelli. They contributed a ton to this week's episode, so we thank them way ahead of time. But let's not sit here and dwell on me talking. Let's get to those memories that we have in America's pastime. April 3rd, 1923. Happy Felsch and Swede Reisberg file a suit against the White Sox for back salary and $400,000 in damages. Both expelled players acquitted for allegedly fixing the 1919 World Series were still banned from baseball by Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Even though they were found not guilty for the wrongdoing in a much publicized court case, April 3rd, 1966. In a special lottery, Tom Seaver picks the Mets from names tossed into a hat that also included the Philadelphia Phillies and the Cleveland Indians, signing with New York for a reported $50,000 bonus. Tom's dad threatened a lawsuit after his son's contract with the Atlanta Braves was voided because the right-handers college team had played two exhibition games but signing a pro contract also prevented the future Hall of Famer from playing on the collegiate level. This is Enzo Pancholi, contributor and historian for Horsehide to Cowhide in America's Past. April 3rd, 1966. Mets win rights to sign Tom Seaver. The season hasn't started yet, and the New York Mets already are big winners. In a special lottery, the Mets win out over the Cleveland Indians and Philadelphia Phillies, the only three teams who had agreed to match the Atlanta Braves' original offer of $40,000 for the rights to sign USC right-hander Tom Seaver. The special drawing is held because Commissioner William Eckert had ruled Seaver's signing by the Braves' Richmond Farm team for a $40,000 bonus was illegal. Atlanta had drafted Seaver. Eckerd nullified the contract and fined Richmond $500 because USC already had started its season. Baseball rules say that a player can't be signed off a college campus once his team has started playing. I'm Anza Pancholi, contributor and historian for Horsehide to Cowhide, America's Pastime. April 3rd, 1984. 
On opening day, Tiger rookie Barbaro Garby becomes the first Cuban refugee to play in the majors when he grounds out in the seventh inning as a pinch hitter for Dave Bergman. The 27-year-old utility player will stay in the game playing first base in Detroit's 8-1 route of Minnesota in the Metrodome. Opening day, 1984. Detroit Tigers rookie Barbero Garby is the first Cuban refugee to play in the majors. Barbero Garby played with the Tigers in 1984 and 1985. He was part of the team that won the World Series in 84 when the Detroit Tigers beat the San Diego Padres. After a brief stint with the Texas Rangers, Barbero Garby's playing career would end, but he would find steady work as a coach in the minor leagues. Barbero Garby is only the second player to defect from Cuba. Barbero Garby officially left Cuba during the Muriel Boatlift in 1980. After the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, Cuba's economy was struggling badly, and they faced severe repercussions from the embargo. Cuban players began to seek careers in Major League Baseball, notably because the salaries were very high. One such player, Orlando Hernandez, who played for the New York Yankees, the Chicago White Sox, the Arizona Diamondbacks, and the New York Mets, was at one point loyal to Cuba until he was banned from the national team following the defection of his half-brother. Today, as we know, many notable names are Cuban defectors. Araldus Chapin is one of them. Yasuo Puig is one of them. Jonas Cespedes is one of them. But the latest one is Jonas Cespedes' half-brother, Yolki Cespedes, who arrived in 2019. It seems that this history has been going on for a long time. The first Cuban defector in baseball was in 1963. Even though he officially defected in 1963, his debut apparently was in 1960. It's always been very difficult for players from Cuba to leave the country to, to come to the United States. It's amazing how scouts can go there and scout them, but for them to leave the country is no simple task. Because if one player leaves and his family is still there, the family faces severe consequences. April 3rd, 1989. In the first major league at bat, Mariners center fielder Ken Griffey Jr. doubles off of Oakland's Dave Stewart. The 19-year-old Jr., the son of an active major league outfielder playing with the Reds, will establish himself as one of the game's superstars before retiring in 2010. 20, 25 years from now, you're going to want to say, I was there when Ken Griffey Jr. made his home debut. So don't forget that on Monday night. There's a drive into the gap in left center field and deep left center field. And Henderson's not going to get to it. It's off the base of the wall. And Griffey to second base in his first major league at bat. A ringing double off the 375 marker. And we have seen that all spring. Welcome to the show, Ken Griffey Jr. And they're going to grab the ball and put it in the dugout for him after the ball game. Look at this. Had a chance to get out of here right at the base of the 375 mark. What a way to break in. Big smile on Ken's face as he pulled into second base. And that just, that brings goosebumps to me, Dave. I've seen a few openers in my time, but uh, first at bat, this kid's had a lot of weight on his shoulders. On April 3rd, 1998, for the first time in his career, the first round pick, 
in the 1987 draft would take his first at-bats. That man's name was Ken Griffey Jr., and he would have double all-star pitcher Dave Stewart of the Oakland Athletics. His nicknames were The Kid and Junior, but most announcers wanted to call him Junior Griffey, and thus started one of the most dominant careers in all professional baseball. He would eventually become one of the most part of the one of the most dominant lineups in all professional baseball of all time. The lineup also included fellow All-Stars Alex Rodriguez, Jay Buhner, Edgar Martinez, and pitcher Randy Johnson. But despite their powerful lineup and powerful pitching, the Mariners were never able to capture the World Series or win the American League Championship. Ken Griffey Jr.'s award list is unbelievable. He's a 10-time Gold Glove winner. He's a 13-time All-Star in 1997. He was the MVP of the American League. His lifetime batting average was 284. He smashed 630 home runs and had an unbelievable 1,836 RBIs. Ken Griffey Jr.'s talents would take him off the baseball field as well. As he, as he was in movies such as Little Big League, Summer Catch, and on TV he was on The Simpsons, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and Arliss. I've seen Ken Griffey Jr. play baseball several times here in New York City, particularly at Yankee Stadium. But one performance will always stand out on my mind on my birthday, May 5th, 1998, as Ken Griffey Jr. smashed a towering home run to the fifth row of the upper deck and smacked two doubles. Mariners would lose to the Yankees, the Mariners would lose to the Yankees on that day, and my followers with me looked at me and said he could not believe how unbelievably dominant one man could be. And when I turned to him, I said, Dad, you just watch one of the most powerful and one of the most dominant players of all time play a game of baseball. In center field, he was amazing. Rub jumped the wall several times to rob players of home runs. He entered the Hall of Fame on July 24, 2016 to a 97% voting rate. Ken Griffey Jr.'s career will always, take, will always be remembered by, by baseball fans as one of the most dominant. And you also, if you ask anybody, they'll tell you he had the sweetest swing in all professional baseball. He retired in 2010. His number, of course, is retired in Seattle 24. He knew three teams, the Seattle Mariners, the Cincinnati Reds, Chicago White Sox for a very short time, and then finished soccer in 2010 back home in Seattle. Ken Griffey Jr., we thank you for your amazing career, and you'll never be forgotten. I am Mark Robbins, this is Horsehide for Cowhide. We thank you so much, and as always, we will see you real soon. April 4th, 1968. Due to today's assassination of civil rights leader Martin Luther King, most of the major league teams will decide to postpone their opening day games until the Reverend's funeral takes place in five days. Surprisingly, the Dodgers at first are the notable exception, even though the Phillies, their opponents on April 9th, will say they will forfeit rather than play on the National Day of Mourning. April 4th, 1974. In a crowd of 52,000 at Riverfront Stadium on opening day in Cincinnati, Hank Aaron ties Babe Ruth's all-time home run record of 714 by hitting a first-inning two-run home run off of Jack Billingham. The Atlanta front office had considered keeping hammering Hank on the bench during road games so the slugger could try to equal the mark in front of the hometown fans. But Commissioner Bowie Kuhn ordered the Braves to put the outfielder into the lineup for at least two out of the three games against the Reds. 3-1 pitch. There's a drive into left field. That ball is going, going, and out of here! 
in the all-time home run parade. The crowd is up. As you would expect, a standing ovation. His teammates are there to greet him. A three-run blast by Henry Aaron has tied the great Babe Ruth. The record they said that couldn't be reached has just been reached by Henry Aaron. April 4th, 1988. Blue Jay designated hitter George Bell becomes the first player to hit three home runs on opening day, helping Toronto defeat the Kansas City Royals at Royal Stadium 5-3. The second, fourth, and eighth inning round trippers are all given up by Brett Saberhagen. In both corners, one thing I would like to say is, you know, he is a designated hitter and you know, let's give him a let's give him a chance in Toronto. And I think the fans there, because of what he has given the fans, what the fans have given him, you know, deserves an opportunity at the start of 1988. George for now has done his talking with his bat. 47 home runs last year. Breaking ball, left center field. Wilson gets a slow start. That ball is another one. Gone. George Bell, consecutive home runs, three to two Toronto. Go after it. Your first baseman gets a late start. Your pitcher's got a oh, Here comes the third, but if it stays fair, and it does. <laughs> Bell has burned Brett Saberhagen and the Royals today. This is one of the all-time opening day shows, folks. April 5th, 1925. Babe Ruth collapses at a railroad station in Asheville, North Carolina. The belly ache heard around the world, so dubbed when a writer suggests that a hot dog and soda binge caused the illness and will require hospitalization and an operation, keeping the Yankee slugger out of the lineup until May. April 5th, 1972. The season opener between the Astros and Reds is canceled due to the player strike, which started on April 1st. The work stoppage cancels opening day for the first time in Major League history, with a total of 86 games not played until both sides agree on an increase in pension fund payments, with the owner also adding salary arbitration to the collective bargaining agreement. April 5th, 1993. At Camden Yards, William Jefferson Clinton, better known as Bill Clinton, becomes the first U.S. president to successfully throw the first pitch from the pitcher's mound. Orioles starter Rick Sutcliffe doesn't fare as well when the Birds lose to the Rangers 7-4. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for the ceremonial opening day, first pitch. And during those honors, we are honored for this presidential opener to have here in Baltimore, the president of the United States, Bill Clinton. April 5th, 1998. After five attempts, the Diamondbacks win their first game in franchise history when Andy Bennis pitches seven strong innings and Matt Williams paces the attack with three hits in the team's 3-2 victory over the San Francisco Giants at Bank One Ballpark. Arizona's 0-5 start in the second longest opening losing streak for an expansion team in its first season 
was only surpassed by the 1962 Mets, who didn't record a victory until their 10th game. April 5th, behind the strong pitching of Andy Bennis, the Diamondbacks secure the team's first victory, a 3-2 win over the Giants. Devon White giving Chase Wentz it down! And celebrate Arizona, the Diamondbacks are in the win column. April 6th, 1971. Giants center fielder Willie Mays, a month shy of his 40th birthday, homers on opening day, and will hit home runs in the next three games to tie a major league record. The Say Hey Kid will hit 15 round trippers before the All-Star break, collecting only three more to finish the year thanks to receiving an abundance of bases on balls. 30 more walks this season than he'd had any time in his career. April 6th, 1973. Orlando Cepeda, who was explicitly signed to the role of the newly created position of DH goes 0 for 6 when the Red Sox pound out 20 hits in a 15-5 route of the Yankees at Fenway Park on opening day. The future Hall of Famer misses out on a place in baseball history when the first inning is extended by a misjudged bloop hit and two walks, giving Ron Blomberg, batting 6th for the Bronx Bombers, the opportunity to be the first player to come to the plate as a DH. April 6, 1974. The Bronx Bombers begin their two-year stint at Shea Stadium, where the team will compile a 172 and 150 record, 534 winning percentage. During the renovations to the stadium, with a 6-1 victory over Cleveland, the other New York fans cheer loudly when the scoreboard posts the 5-4 loss in Philadelphia by the New York Mets. April 6, 1993. Jack Morris sets a major league record when he makes his 14th consecutive opening day start, taking the loss in the Blue Jays' 8-1 defeat to Seattle at the Kingdome. During the span, which started in 1980, with the Tigers' 10 seasons and continued with the Twins' one season, the 37-year-old right-hander has compiled an 8-6 record in his first day assignments. Next with 14 starts is Jack Morris. The man known by some as the pitcher of the 80s, Morris made 11 consecutive opening day starts for the Tigers, with 10 of those coming in each year of the 80s. He would then start for the Twins in 1991, and the Blue Jays in the two years after that, meaning he pitched on opening day each year from 1980 to 1993, an MLB record for consecutive opening day starts. April 7, 1970. The team formerly known as the Seattle Pilots play their first home game in Milwaukee as the Brewers in front of 36,107 enthusiastic fans at County Stadium. The Angels, behind Andy Messersmith's four-hit complete game, route the transplanted brew crew 12 to nothing. April 7, 1977. After a lengthy snow delay on opening day at Exhibition Stadium, Doug Ault, acquired in the expansion draft, hits two home runs in his first two plate appearances in a Blue Jay uniform. 
The rookie first baseman's pair of round trippers, the first two of the only 17 he will hit in his four-year big league career, helps Toronto beat Chicago 9-5, giving the franchise a victory in the first game it plays in history. April 7, 1984. On NBC's nationally televised Game of the Week, Detroit right-hander Jack Morris throws a no-hitter, blanking the White Sox at Comiskey Park for nothing. The 29-year-old becomes the first Tiger hurler to accomplish the feat since Jim Bunning held Boston hitless at Fenway Park in 1958. Working up the set position now. He goes to his set. Chittle waits. Here it comes. He ducks him out, and Morris has a no-hitter. Lance Parrish goes out and grabs him, and the Tigers get a no-hit performance for the first time since 1958 when Jim Bunning did it. Jack Morris, the no-hit hero, surrounded by his teammates in the ninth inning, Chicago, no runs, no hits, no errors, one man left, and the final score, Detroit 4, Chicago nothing. April 8, 1934, at Shy Park, 15,000 fans witnessed the first legal baseball game between major league teams played on a Sunday in the city of Philadelphia. In a hometown exhibition game, the Phillies beat the A's 8-1. April 8, 1969. The Pilots make their major league debut, defeating the Angels at Anaheim Stadium 4-3. Scoring all of their runs in the top of the first inning, Seattle's leadoff hitter, Tommy Harper, starts the game with the franchise's first hit and then crosses the plate with its first run when Mike Hegan, the next batter, hits the first home run in Pilots team history. April 8, 1974. Braves outfielder Hank Aaron passes Babe Ruth as the all-time home run leader with his 715th home run going deep in the fourth inning off Dodger hurler Al Downing in Atlanta's home opener. Hammer and Hank equaled the Bambino's mark on opening day in Cincinnati. Once again, a standing ovation for Henry Aaron. So the confrontation for the second time. Aaron walked in the second inning. He means the tying run at the plate now. So we'll see what Downing does. Al at the belt delivers and he's low ball one and that just adds to the pressure the crowd booing Downing has to ignore the sound effects and stay a professional in pitches game one ball and no strikes Aaron waiting the outfield deep and straight away fastball is a high drive in the deep left center field Buckner goes back to the fence it is gone April 8, 1994. 
Chan Ho Park becomes the first Korean to play in the major leagues when he makes his pitching debut at Chavez Ravine. In one inning of work, the 21-year-old Kongju City native gives up two runs on one hit, walking two, and striking out two batters in the Dodgers' 6-0 loss to the Atlanta Braves. He's going to get a baptism right here. McGriff, Justice, and Pendleton, his first three big league batters he's got to face. McGriff is one for three. Chan Ho Park runs it up there pretty good, and history has been made. One ball, no strikes. April 9th, 1912. In the first ever game played at Fenway Park, the Red Sox beat Harvard two to nothing. In an abbreviated exhibition contest played on a cold and snowy afternoon in front of 3,000 Hardy fans. Crimson third baseman and captain Dana Wingate, a sophomore from Winchester, Massachusetts, becomes the first batter in Boston Ballpark taking the first pitch for ball one before struck out on a fastball thrown by Casey Hageman. April 9th, 1959. Dr. Creighton Hale recommends that Little League pitching mounds be moved back from home plate by 24 inches. The organization's vice president believes a ball thrown by a youngster at 70 miles an hour from 46 feet would give the batter about the same amount of time to swing at a pitch, proportionately as the major leaguers have. April 9th, 1970. Written by Paul Simon, the, the songwriter. On the Dick Cavett Show, Paul Simon tells Mickey Mantle the lyrics to Mrs. Robinson would have been, where have you gone, Mickey Mantle, but explains to his favorite player, it's all about syllables, Mick. It's about how many beats there are. The songwriter's well-known lyrics become, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio, a nation turns its lonely eyes to you. August 9, 1993. Bo New from Nike's full-page ad in Tomorrow's USA Today. Bo Jackson, in his first at-bat after 18 months of rehab, following his hip replacement surgery, connects for a long home run with his first swing of the season in the team's 11-6 opening day loss to the Yankees at Comiskey Park. En route to being named the American League Comeback Player of the Year, the 1985 Heisman Trophy winner will hit 16 home runs and collect 45 RBIs in 85 games, contributing to the White Sox divisional title. That ball hit deep to right field. Tarnival goes back, looks up. You can't put it on the board. Yes! Bo Jackson in his first event in the 93 season.
And that's it for this week's episode of Horsehide to Cowhide, America's Pastime. Thank you to Alex, Mark, and Enzo for their commentary on this week's episode. Credits out to Major League Baseball, WPIX, SNY, Lookout Media, NBC Sports, CBS Sports, and more. Usage for the Fair Usage Act for commentary on the audio that we use for this week's show. Tune in again next week for another edition of Horsehide to Cowhide, America's Pastime. Looking for his first turn of the year. Oh, he drives one. Deep left field. Back goes Upton. Back near the wall. It's out of here. Bartolo has done it. The impossible has happened. <laughs>